Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sachs. Now, normally on Fridays, we have Tim Miller, but as you know, Tim has uh, his new book out and he's doing his book tour. So he was he was on earlier this week. And of course, he'll be back uh, next Friday. But we are very fortunate to get the very, very, very busy. In fact, too busy to do this podcast for a long time. Tom Nichols back on the podcast, contributing writer at The Atlantic, where he's also the author of his own newsletter, Peacefield. Professor Emeritus at the Naval uh, War College, and his books include, of course, our own worst enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy and the Death of Expertise. So, Tom, welcome back. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for having me back. So the big scandal of 2022 is (laughs) the biggest, the worst scandal, the one that I'm having the hardest time getting over. It's the fact that there's a whole page in the new uh, Room Raider book devoted to you and your cat well actually devoted to my cat only i was purely a supporting character and the scandal is my mantle and my dogs did not make the book at all so i'm i'm i have i'm bitter i am disappointed i'm trying to cope with this but you know that the room raider people are basically cat people is that true well obviously that's the case right right well you know Lorenzo the cat does a lot of their uh, pet ratings, and uh, I'm told reliably that Lorenzo has something of a crush on Carla, which is totally understandable. Okay, Carla is 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 of course the cat. Uh, in any of case, of course. Well, look, I I'm, I shouldn't complain. I've got you know the the people know what we're even talking about. Is this like the ultimate obnoxious insider stuff? <laughs> It, it, yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying. It's like you know, I don't, dude. I don't believe that your Zoom room setup got a better <laughs> shout out than mine. I actually started the podcast. Wow. By, by, so no, that's a very 2022 thing. You know, guys talking first world problems, talking yes. about the rating on your Zoom call. Okay, so <laughs> it does seem like a long time ago. I mean, that a, a few months ago, I actually went back into a TV studio, and I was like, oh yeah. These still exist. Yes. Where do I look? What is it? What, is, what does it do? Well, yeah. Okay. So speaking of of time warps, um, you're now doing. Well, you are a busy guy. You, you have been doing the daily newsletter for the Atlantic, which has really been outstanding. First time I had to say no because I was on a deadline, um, oh, Charlie. That. But yes, for the past um, three weeks, I have been helming uh, the Atlantic Daily, which um, all of you out there should subscribe to. I'm going to be writing that every day for another week. Ooh. And then I go back to my um, regular newsletter, although I do have a newsletter coming for the holiday weekend that I think a lot of people are going to find interesting, which is about my very um, strange addiction to middle-of-the-night vintage television. Boy. All which right. is on a thing called Me TV, because um, people <laughs> well, often see me. Well, that is. <laughs> people often see me referring to um, Joe Mannix, and uh, of course, older folks get it. Younger folks are like, "Who is this?" You know, Joe Mannix guy. Uh, so I decided to explain my nostalgic attraction to uh, the television okay. shows of my youth. So that'll be coming this week. Th- th- this is going to trigger my much younger colleague Tim Miller, who's already on Slack, saying he's trying to get his head around the fact that. On yesterday's podcast, Tim O'Brien and I were talking about a 1948 movie uh, making a reference to Sunset Boulevard and apparently Donald Trump's uh, 
fascination with uh, the character of uh, Norma Desmond. So I just, in, in, in case you Tim has never seen Sunset Boulevard. I think Tim has a thing about anything, you know, with a 19 in front of it in terms of years. <laughs> it, 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 it is part of a, well, it's, yeah. the, this is what, this is what makes life great is this diversity, this, the, the ongoing dialogue between the generations, which goes something like, do you remember when, and they go, oh, you are so old. No, I wasn't, I wasn't born there. <laughs> Just just as my uh, how do you do to Tim, you know, I use Slack. The the youngs taught me how to do it. And now I find that when I make a um, pretty funny movie reference, I have to stop and explain it to everyone else in the Slack channel. I say yep. things like this was a movie once and it makes me feel like um, grandpa with a smartphone. But, oh. um, you know. Okay, so let's. Th- this will be the theme of our podcast: Grandpas with smartphones. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so one of the things I mentioned to you, and, and uh, it's it's Friday, and time, and we we live in this time warp, which we've described before. And I was thinking about what you and I should talk about, and I thought, boy, you know, that Cassidy Hutchinson, but it, you know, uh, testimony. That was three months that ago. Was, yeah, well, no, it was <laughs> two days ago. Or, right. or okay, now think about this: it is Friday. It was a week ago that Roe versus Wade was overturned. And it's like, oh, we got to move on, right? That's that's an old story. So so let's go back. But you've written a lot about all of this. The the fallout from that testimony was, was one bombshell after another. And of course, Trump world is completely predictably all in and trying to discredit uh, Cassidy Hutchinson. So just give me give me your 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 top line thoughts on all of this and and whether any of this makes a difference. You know, we were just talking about Tim, which is always yeah. fun talking about somebody who's not here. So I'll give a shout out to Tim and say, you know, this whole week has been insane and really punctuated by the Cassidy Hutchinson thing. And it and it I think it really emphasized something that Tim's written about, which is there's almost nothing that the anti-anti-Trumpers won't rationalize. Right, right. You know, and this this one was a red alert. This one was DEFCON 1 because this isn't, you know, some like those, like the the impeachment hearings that I thought just went so off the rails at times where this isn't some, you know, bow-tied Harvard professor explaining carefully why the impeachment power can be you none of it was none of that intellectual mumbo jumbo this is a earnest attractive young person speaking very clearly and saying this shit happened mm-hmm. and by the way i think you can see the amount of panic in that clip where trump talks about her she has mental problems i don't even know her you know, I mean, he usually does that stuff. Oh, you know, there's some of the coffee boy stuff. But he, there's this real fear in his beady little eyes there where he's like, don't know her. This girl, I don't know why she would do this. I think she has problems. I think she has mental problems. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you were on Air Force One with her. With her. She was the aide to your chief of staff. You know exactly who she is. Of course is. she did. Of course, of course he does. I, and 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 as I said, you know, earlier this week, I mean, this is his worst nightmare because he understood exactly what you described. This was very riveting television. This was exactly the kind of testimony that he would fear. Right. It was good television. I think one of the things that the that the January 6th committee has really shown is um, you know, that that whole decision by McCarthy 
Kevin McCarthy to try and torpedo this business by sending in Jim Jones and Jim Banks. Um, Great decision on the part of the Democrats to say, okay, we gave you a fair chance. You could have sent us sane people. And now we're going to do a very carefully produced narrative for two hours with Republicans who were in the room explaining to the country what happened? And we're not going to do that five minutes of speeches back and forth. We're not going to do, you know, this is more of a comment than a question kind of. It's just, yeah. good morning. Here's an opening statement. The witnesses are going to talk. Here's a closing statement. We'll see you next week. And Trump knows how in- unbelievably powerful that is. And also that people are ratting him out now. This is you know, the, one of the things about the Hutchinson story I find really interesting is that apparently her first lawyers, and I'm I'm still piecing this together because yeah. it's just coming out, but apparently her first lawyer was somehow affiliated with Trump World. And then she ditches that guy and says, no, Paid there's stuff I actually want to say and gets another lawyer and comes back. Yeah, well, the, the New York Times talks about this. You know, Trump group pays for January 6th lawyers raising uh, concerns of witness pressure. I I headlined that obstruction of justice in plain sight. And so you, you mentioned Cassidy Hutchinson. She uh, testified only after firing a lawyer who had been recommended to her by two of Trump's former aides paid for by his political action committee. And then, of course, she hired new counsel. But you know, you think about that whole process, that he thinks that he's going to be able to keep a lid on this by threatening people, bullying people, but also by bankrolling their lawyers. And of course, that stops the moment they say anything he doesn't like, right? I mean, isn't that what triggered Michael Cohen, that when he stopped paying for Michael Cohen's legal defense, uh, the Cohen totally flipped on him? Yeah, it's very mafioso. But it's worked for him so far. Well, and then the messages, those text messages, you can almost hear them in a Robert De Niro voice. No, Always shut, always keep, <laughs> never rat, rat on your friends, always keep your mouth shut. It's just incredible that this is, I mean, especially, you know, if you're a 20-something aide in D.C. surrounded by powerful people and you get a message like that, that's got to be pretty scary. That's got to be a way of saying, you know, you don't want your whole career and life to be over at 26. We're watching you. We're reading transcripts. Do the right thing here, and you'll be taken care of. Okay, I so mean, you, you, you know, this you, is Frankie Pentangeli. You know, uh, the little guys get knocked <laughs> off, Tom, but, you know, uh, the, their families were always taken care of. I mean, this is insane. That was actually pretty good. Actually, but now that you mention it, knowing how Trump's mind works, right? He is, you know, he wanted to be a movie, uh, you know, a movie producer at some time. He probably thinks of himself as that character in the movie. I mean, he probably is challenging that. Okay, so you wrote in The Atlantic right after uh, the, the testimony, the sudden presentation of truth about a terrible thing, such as Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, provides a kind of tipping point where revelations finally move people from denial to acceptance. Will that happen? How does Trump world react? How does, how does the Fox world react to watching all of this? Because you know that, that well, they, they've made a choice. So give me your thoughts. I actually decided to watch Fox the other night, which I do on occasion, because I want to know what millions of my fellow citizens are watching, you know, and getting their brains fried with. (laughs) And um, it was really interesting. I mean, Sean Hannity opened his show and for like 30 seconds, didn't take a breath. 
I mean, it was Hunter Biden witch hunt, Russia hoax, um, you know, the immigrants, this, that, bang, boom, inflation. I mean, it was just this kind of like gish gallop stream of consciousness, no pausing, eyes desperately trying to keep up with the teleprompter, freak out. Because Fox News viewers aren't watching this. I I don't know if you saw this. There was a great segment on uh, Brian Stelter's show where he pointed out they, they showed the ratings. And then on Fox, the minute Fox would start showing the hearings, Fox's viewership cratered. Like they, his, the viewers were literally saying, I can't watch this. I'm going to turn off the TV, which really it tells you something, you know, that, that it's not just that they're, that they're going to leave the TV on. They were like literally going over and turning off the television, changing the channel. Um, so the Fox primetime people know that they're up against this gigantic Hoover dam size wall of denial and they're just tap dancing as fast as they can. And now they've got this interesting problem with Andy McCarthy. Or National Review. Yeah. yeah, well, one of their legal guys who's on all the time. Now, Andy McCarthy is no shrinking violet. I mean, this is a guy who wanted to impeach Obama and wanted to preventively impeach Hillary Clinton to stop her from running from, for office. And here's McCarthy suddenly saying, you know, yeah, I think he could be indicted. This is pretty bad. This is criminal behavior. I think he's in real trouble. And and again, this is, you know, a Fox mainstay. So, of course, the I, I think the other night I put out a clip of uh, Mason. I said, of um, Jackie Gleason, I said, you know, the entire Fox lineup now, their reaction to this is like Jackie Gleason going, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. I uh, thought that was great. And they just don't know what to do. Well, and, they and- do eventually, right? Because there's always that. I mean, this has gone on uh, you know, over and over again, where you'll have some terrible revelation that's impossible to defend. So sometimes there's this deep intake of breath. Some people engage in strategic silence. They just don't say anything until they figure out, number one, how to change the subject or they they you know grab on to something to use to to push back. So for example, Trump World is all in fuego about the detail in her testimony about what happened with the Secret Service in that car. And if you are in any sort of right-wing uh, you know bubble, you know that 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 is what they're talking about, right? So you're I mean, right, they're trying to put they're that trying in context to for me. One you know? detail. Right. You have this massive load of evidence suggesting a criminal conspiracy. But of course, this is the way that the right-wing media figures out a way to rationalize and defend, right? You change the subject to something else, you talk about something else, or you grab one detail that then you try to use to unravel all of the rest of the problem, right? I mean, isn't that what they do? Isn't that how we've gotten to where we are right now? That's what's going on here, which is the detail they're focused on is, did he try and grab the steering wheel? And I love, by the way, that one of the ways they're saying that couldn't happen is that Trump is just too corpulent to have been able to reach the steering wheel, which is really, I'm sure, a great explanation that's going down well in Mar-a-Lago. Oh, don't worry. Our guy is just such a you know gelatinous mass uh, that he couldn't possibly have reached the the steering wheel, but the, the what they don't dispute is he said yes I know they're armed, yes I know they're on their way to the Capitol. Yeah, uh, take me there. I want to go with them into the Capitol. I'm going to lead them into the cap. No, but they say but he didn't grab the steering wheel. Yes, but you're not disputing the 
really yeah, all the other stuff. part of it, you know, the, the exactly the, the, you know, the horrendous parsing of this of, well, did he mean that they weren't there to hurt him or did they mean, did he mean that they weren't there to hurt him? Um, but, you know, again, they were armed. He knew they were armed. He tweeted about, about Mike Pence after he knew that the mob was howling for Mike Pence's blood. And, you know, there is no good spin to come out of this. So they say, so you can just imagine those editorial meetings, you know, before the, before the primetime nightmare begins at Fox of, okay, let's do the steering wheel thing. If we're going to talk about this at all, right. but get me more Hunter Biden, Right. You know, interns running down the halls trying to pull things we, off of computers. You know, I get, we have get, some video of the caravans. We need some care. We need yes. the caravans. They're coming, right? Yes. You know, suddenly Fox is full of deep and very human concern about people dying at the border. Yeah, I know. They're very and, concerned about that. And next week, you're probably going to have to go back to, you know, using infrared on your testicles or something like that to be manly. Okay, so Tom, let's just talk about uh, denial and acceptance. I want to take a somewhat deeper dive into I'm this. Glad we got but, off that infrared on the testicles thing. I, just, so yeah, I, I wanted to do that because and that that's kind of a, a, a segue because I want to come back to this whole question which you dealt with of denial versus acceptance. Okay, so one of the things you did that I, was really interesting as a Sovietologist you know, you, you talked about how, um, you know, during the Cold War, you had, uh, you know, Soviet apologists who, you know, you know, tried to believe or deny certain things. And then, of course, the evidence came out and it, it settled it. And so you, you then compare the American apologists, um, you know, for the Soviets to Trump supporters. And, and you point out they've been in denial up until now. They've been in denial about Trump's emotional instability, his malignant narcissism, his fascination with violent rhetoric, his hostility to the American constitutional order. But without, you know, having this peek into the Oval Office, th those were only conjecture. Well, now that we're getting all of this information that says, no, this actually happened. The question is, will people move from denial to acceptance? Or in terms of acceptance, there's different words of that. Acceptance, like believing it, okay, all of this is true, versus, okay, all of this is true, and I kind of like it. <laughs> or, or I don't care. I don't care. I was a Sovietologist. I did a lot, you know, back, I was back in the Cold War days. That's what I did. And I wrote a book about the Cold War. And, you know, when the Cold War ended, it really was like this. It's kind of like what you're seeing now. People for who had for years had said things like, Stalin didn't kill that many people. There was that. I actually linked to an article in that piece where um, I talk about a guy. There was a, he's passed away now, but there was a guy who wrote about Stalin. And he said, someone said to him once, you know, how many people do you think Stalin killed? And he said, Mm, maybe a hundred thousand, which he thought was like a big compromising figure. It was like 11 million, right? You had guys like that right then. Alger Hiss was innocent. The Rosenbergs were innocent. The Soviets didn't kill the Poles at Katyn Forest. I mean, then the archives open up and Cassidy Hutchinson and the J6 committee, you know, they're kind of like the archives, the Russian archives opening up where suddenly it's like, oh, holy shit wow, here is, you know, the definitive evidence that the Rosenbergs were guilty. Here is the death order for the Polish officers signed by Stalin. Um, you know, here is the evidence that this is not 100,000, that it's in the millions. And um, there were a lot of people in that early post-cold, I was, I was in a lot of those debates with a lot of those folks who just didn't want to accept it. 
and literally, you know, we're impugning this. Well, we don't have a complete record. Well, we've only had limited releases from the archives. Well, we're not sure. Over the years, they finally have kind of gotten to, you know, okay, fine. <laughs> like literally, you know, like, all right, fine. The Soviet Union was bad, but the United States was just as bad. And that's what I think the Trump people are going to fall back on. They're going to say, okay, fine. Trump is horrible. He did a lot of terrible things, but I'm still not going to vote for Democrats because they're communists. Right. I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think people uh, underestimate sometimes, you know, how strong that is. Um, that that binary choice. I mean, that that was what you know, back in remember in 2016 we had the uh, it was the flight 93 election that yes you know uh, mm-hmm. we we might all die but we just you know Hillary Clinton is is so much worse. January 6 was really about all of that. And I, I, I in my newsletter today I, I made the point you know that people shouldn't you know get too fixated on the big lie about the elections because the big lie is just a pretext for this idea that we must never allow the other side to get into power again because they are so evil, because they are so dangerous. So it's one of the reasons why the evidence is non-existent and doesn't seem to matter. I mean, it, it is kind of I interesting moment. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, Charlie, I think what you just said is a really important point, which is that these are all rationalizations yes. for the deep down belief that the other side, that Democrats, that people who are not or or rhinos or Republicans who don't agree with us. Basically, anyone who isn't in this cult cannot be allowed to gain power through the peaceful transfer of power or the ballot box. It is simply unacceptable. And they're not even pretending anymore, I think. A lot of the folks out there in, in Trump world and in in Trump America, that they care about elections or fairness. They're basically saying, look, I just... It can't happen. And right. if I have to burn ballots or throw them in the river, then so be it. Because what I am defending and what I am standing for is more important than things like democracy. And that, when you get to that point, you can rationalize anything. anything. Yeah, by any means necessary. Again, I, I think this is an important point because if you look on the surface of the arguments of people who support the big lie, they're talking about election integrity as if they actually care about how the votes are counted. So you could actually rationalize many of the things they're doing as, in fact, being, you know, misguided, but pro-democracy. Like, for example, you know, if you take it at face value, the people on January 6th were trying to protest a stolen election, the assumption being, of course, that elections should not be stolen, right, that they should be respected. But the deeper reality is, and, and again, the tell is the fact that if you begin coming up with evidence for how the election was stolen, it all turns out to be bullshit or it's a name gibberish or it's Italian satellites or something. And they constantly will keep changing the argument. So ultimately, the reality is they just really don't care. They don't really care about mules or drop boxes. What it comes down to is that they're now talking about having state legislatures have the power to overturn the popular vote. It's just basically we want to win or more importantly, we just have to defeat the enemy. And, it, and once you understand that, you understand that, okay, it seems bad that people believe crazy, bogus stuff, but actually the reality is they believe something much worse. You really do have this internalization of the refusal to accept the peaceful transfer of power to your political opponents. And there's a, there are words for that, right? Well, which is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but which also unwinds 200 years of constitutionalism. I mean, the miracle of the United States is that, you know, we, we, every time 
pass the test of passing you know, the peaceful transfer of power back and forth between opposing groups. This is now a group of Americans who, and, and I, I want to bifurcate this group. I want to I split this group of Americans up because we, we shouldn't talk yeah, about them as right. an undifferentiated mass. There are some Americans who simply will not accept the peaceful transfer of power because their, their brains are, have been marinated in toxic sludge. Yep. I mean, they literally are not capable of yep. rational decisions mm-hmm. and accepting information because they just they they just kind of you know put a um, you know kind of stick their face into this this Fox or Newsmax or OAN stew, and they say, "I don't you know I believe I believe I believe." And I've talked to people like that where it's kind of going back to the Cold War. It's kind of like George Orwell and Doublethink. It's like um, they believe that it that they they believe that the election was stolen while somehow knowing the election wasn't really stolen. Right, right. And so they don't care, and they want to go to a news source that relieves the sense of anxiety that the cognitive dissonance is producing in them, and that's really tragic. And those will be the kind of foot soldiers that a lot of these elected Republicans will use to to you know attack the Capitol again that that you know that that are sent out there into the street to go get arrested because they are at this point so you know so addled that 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 they almost have no idea what they're really out there trying to do the people that are really horrible in all this are the people who know right and think of somebody like Jeffrey Clark you know mm-hmm. Jeffrey Clark uh, this nobody at justice who says, I could be attorney general. This is my shot. This mm-hmm. is my moment. John Eastman, you know, um, uh, out out west and as the dean of a small law school, I'm going to be at the center of great events. I'm going to the rally on January 6th. I'm going to help overturn an election. And we're going to get everything, you know, we finally wanted. We're going to prevent the bad guys from ever coming to power again. And we are going to be very important people in the new regime. And, the, you know, at least the fanic. I mean, you sort of go up this ladder and you have the yep. people who are, you know, the complete Iagos, you know, that you just described. And then there are the, you know, the team normal people, the people who really know better, who are not in any way demented and yet decide that they will go along with it. At least Stefanik knows all of this stuff. Of course she does. So does Josh Hawley. So does Ted Cruz. Exactly. So do all of those guys. And their answer is, I'm going to stay in power. And if I have to stay in power by literally making my fellow citizens into complete psychopaths, then if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. And that's exactly the way it works. We always say stuff like this, right? When you're talking about politics and people you disagree with, but I really mean it. How do you sleep at night? How do you, how do you literally, how do you sleep at night saying, you know, I think you, I think you overestimate the power of shame to to survive. I think these guys, in order to function the way they have functioned, uh, they have managed to move into a completely post shame, post conscience world. And I'm sure that there are, see, here's the thing. The, there are infinite ways in which people can rationalize their behavior. This is not something new. You know, there are people who, you know, who know better, who decide that they'll come up with, and, and, and I don't know whether you, you've, well, you have noticed this. I'm always struck by the fact that, that sometimes it's the really most intelligent individuals who use their intellect in order to construct these alternative realities that are actually pretty elaborate. I mean, Sean Hannity is just a dumb hack, right? I mean, he's dumb right. as a box of rocks. But there are others who I know in order to sleep at night construct very, very elaborate 
rationales that make them feel like uh, they are completely okay. Um, or, 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 or because they're simply just caught up in the combat of the moment to, to the extent that they just don't even ask these questions. I think that's always the thing about Hannity, right? That mm -hmm. you talk to anybody who knows him and they say, look, the guy's just dumb. It's just it's the way dumb. he is. Right, right. But that then suggests to you that somebody like Tucker Carlson, who is, you know, fairly intelligent and has a long track record of, you know, writing and showing that he is capable of intelligent thinking. That's when you have to step back and say, wow. So the only other conclusion is these are really bad people. Yeah. I mean, doing terrible things for ambition and money. And, you know, your point about the ability to rationalize, I, I, I wanted to give you a shout out, Charlie, because I thought the, the piece you wrote about the way you were wrestling with the Dobbs decision mm -hmm. as a, as a pro-life guy, you know, really struck me because those of us on, on the never Trump conservative side have had to say, what is it we really believe? Yeah. You know, how much of this was just me kind of, you know, doing my own, doing a little lib owning of my own, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, how much of this was I really committed to? Um, and what I, what really struck me about what you wrote was, Hey, I still believe in a lot of these things as a policy matter, but I don't trust the people advocating this now. Right. You know, I mean, I just don't trust people on the right not to be fascists about it. I mean, I rarely use that mm -hmm. word, but, you know, not to be complete authoritarians about it. And so have I changed my policy preferences? Yeah, I guess I have in the sense that I have put them far lower in the order of things I care about than caring about, I don't know, democracy or the Constitution or the ability of this government and this system of government to renew itself every two to four years. Well, and you know, what I was also writing was that I had to clarify the difference between government policies and, you know, criminal statutes and a culture of life. And as I began thinking back on it, you know, have I changed my position? Well, it, it, I, I think that over decades of thinking about it, I had just changed my priorities. And again, on the question of life itself. So I really do feel that I am still pro-life. I just don't think putting people in jail or having laws about it is as important as creating a culture of respect for life. And I, this is where I came down, which is that I think that the Dobbs decision is going to have the opposite effect, that it's not going to create a respect for life. Um, I have no confidence whatsoever that Republicans will now embrace these policies that will be supportive of young pregnant women and their children. I mean, there's zero chance that they're going to be as passionate about extending child credits or family leave or any of those things as they will be about, say, you know, a banning, you know, banning the interstate transport of abortion drugs. You know how this is going to play out, you know? There's a cruelty to it that I just find so incredibly abhorrent that it, I ended up back to kind of like you. I want to take it off the table as a government and criminal matter because, again, I don't trust the people who are making those arguments. And I say this as you know, I've, I've already talked in another piece about, you know, my mom nearly dying right. from an abortion, but I'm also an adoptive father. You know, I've been the beneficiary of somebody choosing to 
have a baby. And I, I just don't, it doesn't lend itself to these kind of stupid, you know, punitive red state laws. Punitive and performative. That, by the way, is David French's phrase. And he's also conflicted about this. I mean, long tradition. He was much more favorable to Dobbs than I was or where or, or you were. But then he's looking around the country and saying, okay, so is this movement of which I've been a part you know, what is it now? And he's looking at these state laws and they are punitive and performative. Okay, so Tom, you and I both are conflicted about this. You had a very, very strong piece uh, last week. Roe was flawed. Dobbs is worse. This is my problem is that Roe versus Wade was terrible law. Ruth Bader Ginsburg knew it was terrible law. I always thought that it needed to be modified. But Dobbs was a genuinely radical decision. So why do you think you you say Roe was flawed, Dobbs is worse? How was Dobbs worse? And it was interesting how much shelling I took from our former friends on the right Mm -hmm. when I said this was an activist court. This was like like you just said, Charlie, Mm -hmm. radical. And they're like, well, how can this be radical? We're just giving it back to the states. No, you aren't. Um, you are, you know, exactly what some of those states are doing. You're throwing a grenade into the middle of, uh, American society and you're pulling back a right that previous courts for 50 years, including, <clears throat> you know, I mean, we're not talking about 1850. We're talking about previous courts 20 or 30 years ago. We're still affirming as a right. And the reason I thought it was radical is I thought that Alito's opinion and particularly that creepy Thomas concurrence basically said, Listen, we just don't like abortion. That's it. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and to me, that was, I mean, you know, Charlie, I feel like everything that happened before Trump in the conservative movement has now been memory, to use another Orwellian term, it's been memory hold. Like, I'm sorry, weren't we the ones who said justices can't just rule based on stuff they happen to like or not like? You know, and there was Chief Justice Roberts saying, look. Alone. Alone, <laughs> alone, saying, "Look, Roe is flawed, but you don't have to pull back a right to illegal abortion while fixing Roe, you know, as a poorly decided case." And instead, they said, "You know, one poorly decided case needs another." And so, Alito, talk about you know punitive and performative. I mean, there was a real kind of almost incoherent. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. So, you know, let let Lawrence Tribe and. Um, his, you know, right-wing counterpart argue about the verbiage in Alito. To me, as a layman, it came across as, listen, I haven't liked abortion since the, you know, since since I was uh, a kid. I've been, since the first day in public life, I want this thing out of our lives. And whatever I have to do to get to that decision is fine. And to me, that's activism. That's radical of saying, these are my dearly held personal beliefs, and I'm going to institutionalize them through a judicial decision. And I didn't get the sense of, I mean, was there anybody in doubt about, you know, Barrett and Thomas and the idea that somehow they sat back and said, well, we understand that this is a right that has become deepened and institutionalized in American life, but we have to unscrew this kind of problem in row. The disingenuousness of saying, well, now the states will figure it out. That majority knew that the minute they ruled, these punitive and performative measures were going to go right into effect. They're going to snap into effect the minute they handed over the decision. They weren't expecting some, you know, big constitutionalist, nationalist, democratic debate about an important issue. They knew that the blue states were going to immediately, you know, codify and protect this right, and that the red states were going to put into effect 
you know, these bear trap laws that were going to spring shut the minute the decision came down. I mean, it really was, to me, just a shameful attempt to inflict the personal views of some justices on the rest of America. So here's what surprised me, why I never thought that Roe would be overturned in this way, because you know, this may seem a little bit wonky and nerdy, and neither you or I are constitutional lawyers, so I want to make that up front. But the whole concept of stare decisis was a fundamentally conservative idea, which basically said, look, if you have settled law that people rely upon for a long, long, long period of time, decades, you ought to be extremely cautious in overturning that. You should simply not change the fundamental law of the land because the personnel on the court have have changed. And again, this is something that Justice Roberts said quite explicitly, but he is the only Burkean conservative on that court. Um, right. But I the did, other are movement conservatives. I did think that Kavanaugh might be more of an institutionalist Burkean academy. Now, of course, you know, you get a little bit of pushback on all of this that, you know, conservatives point to other decisions that were overturned, terrible decisions, Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson. Korematsu, I mean, is that my pronouncing well, that? I mentioned Korematsu, which was never actually overturned. Really? Right. It was, it was really, a Japanese was, internment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was basically in 2018, it was like disavowed okay. by the court in a decision. Um, and Roberts, and I included this quote in the piece, Robert said, Korematsu has been overruled in the court of history. And okay. I said, Fair. yes. And, and Roe has been affirmed in the court of history. You know, it wasn't like Roe was decided and then uh, somehow, you know, the anti-abortion sentiment in America grew, which is why the the c- uh, comparisons to things like um, Plessy are just so disingenuous. The the um, It's not like, you know, America was moving back toward slavery and the court made this ruling. I mean, clearly, you know, it was a bad ruling because it was the court going backward when the rest of the country was going forward in a different direction. And I understand the conservatives will say, listen, you don't decide Supreme Court decisions by popular vote. On the other hand, Supreme Courts do, in fact, as you pointed out, Mm. observe things like stare decisis that say, However, this may have been decided. Have people come to accept this and rely on it, as political scientists would say? Has it become institutionalized in our lives? And if you're going to overturn that, you'd better have a better reason than I just don't happen to like abortion. And that was one of the things in the decision where Alito was basically making, see, again, as a layman, and I'm just saying, Mm -hmm. I read it, I'm a layperson. But uh, it seemed to me this isn't an argument about Roe. This is an argument. This is a pro-life brief. Well, I this is not just abstract to you. Uh, and, and you have written about this. And I know I remember when you wrote about it for the first time, you were very, very, very reluctant to do this, that uh, about your your late mother's ex- experience that yeah. that you learned after your mother passed away that 20 years ago she nearly died from an illegal abortion. She died Ooh. 23 years ago, and um, my, and and you're right. I mean, I I was asked a couple of times at a few places I wrote to tell this story, and I I just I, um, you know, in part because I don't think that you know every political issue is a place to yeah. start you know hanging out your own laundry, but I had to explain why, even though I would normally be considered conservative on a lot of things that I just was about keeping abortion legal. Um, my mother died in 1999 and I was with my dad and, um, he, um, 
he said, uh, your mother loved you very much. And she, you know, and I said, yeah, you know, I know. And she would, she wanted to have more kids. And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, well, I, I, I know about the miscarriage. She told me, you know, um, and this was like that scene from the Godfather, right? Where, you know, all these years we're told, we told this kind of tale about miscarriages and my father just kind of looked at me and he said, what, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, and I sort of told this and he started to cry. Um, we were in a bar Jeez. in Springfield, mm-hmm. Mass. And, uh, you know, we were standing at a bar at the, at this watering hole in downtown Springfield. And, um, my father, you know, 80 something years old, he just burst into tears and he said it wasn't a miscarriage. He said she had an abortion. She almost died. She ended up in the hospital and she was surrounded by, and he told me this whole story about, you know, she's laying in a bed, you know, with tubes and, you know, antibiotics or whatever they were treating her with and literally cops standing around the bed, a police woman trying to get her to rat out my dad uh, and whoever had done this. Now, my mother, you know, was in her early twenties, scared out of her mind in horrendous pain, almost died. My dad was in the hospital, which is how he saw it. And he had to kind of just keep walking as he saw this and, you know, this whole thing became this big criminal thing. Who did that? Give us names. And he said, your mother, and of course my father's telling me through all this sort of cascade of tears. And he said, your mother, you know, protected me from the cops. And I just didn't even, I couldn't, I was so thunderstruck that I, I didn't ask, you know, where did it happen? How did you find the person who died? I just didn't, you know, and it was such a botched situation that she did manage to have one more baby um, here I am. Extraordinary. Um, but but uh, then she was in such bad shape that she ended up finally just having a hysterectomy and just couldn't have any more kids. And I didn't know any of this. I thought, well, my mom had a miscarriage, then she had me, then she had lady problems, so she had a hysterectomy. And, you know, that was, but in part, um, that that whole experience, and then the marriage that, the, the kind of shotgun marriage that produced me, um, you know, was a very rough marriage because she had been through hell and he mm-hmm. felt trapped. And my mother spent the next 15 years, the first 15 years of my life um, and the first 15 years of her marriage struggling really hard with alcoholism. See, it, it was, so if I don't know what take from this story and I don't know what people out there are going to draw from this other than my bottom line on it is I would never have wanted anyone to make that decision for my mother, but my mother. Well, I think that's the takeaway, is how tragic, how complicated, how varied these experiences are, and the, the, just the gap between you know, listening to politicians glibly talk about what they're going to do about it versus the, this life-changing, intimate, really existential decision that women have to make. And if there's one thing that we should not be debating on Twitter, it should be something like this, right? Right. And, and when I hear people like that guy in Mississippi the other day, well, you know, she's 12, she's been raped, it's incest, uh, you know, baby's born too, going to have to have it. And I th- think to myself, you know, I mean, I just, I can't even get to the point of fear. I just, I just want to say, watching somebody like that, I just think, look, just shut up. Yeah. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, you just don't. Yeah, and, and on either side of this, whether whether a young woman in that situation, a girl in that situation is going to have a baby or have an abortion, the last thing we need is some pompous, bloviating Southern Paul 
talking about, you know, what a tough guy he is because he would make a 12 year old girl carry a rapist baby. So, you know, a little, little more humanity and a little less, um, you know, peacocking would make us a better country about this. But the Supreme Court took, you know, we were all able to say, look, we have a workable compromise here that, you know, we can still keep working on. And in these decisions, as you said about, you know, never just overturning it, but just, you know, fixing things that we think might be wrong with the jurisprudence about it. And instead, the Supreme Court has opened the door to, you know, all these guys strutting around talking about, you know, how they're the how they're the real heroes of all these stories. And it's going to be so much worse. You know, you cited that one example, but you've taken this issue, this intimate issue, and, and you, you've, you've tossed it into this fiery cauldron of the culture wars where all of these bad faith, liberal owning uh, memes, you know, and look, I mean, I, this is one of those cases where I think this, the rhetoric is going to be so horrific on uh, surrounding this. I, there's, there was never a good time, I think, to have a political debate about this, but can you imagine a worse time to be having the kind of debate that we're about to have? Well, especially now when it'll be, you know, it's one more thing that gets added to the big rucksack of crazy shit that people are going to believe validates their attempts to overturn elections. Not only was the election cruel, not just crazy, but there's there's an element of cruelty here, insensitive. Well, you know, there's my Atlanta colleague, Adam Serwer, coined that great phrase. The cruelty is the point. I I saw um, on Twitter the other day, Eric Erickson saying, Good. Screw you. Now you know how we feel. And I thought, well, that's a that's a gentle and kind pro life position, isn't it? You know, we're gonna we're gonna own the libs by making babies have babies. But your point about throwing this into a fiery cauldron, where now it can be wedded to people's ambitions again, and they can say things like, "I'm not just overturning an election because of Italian voting machines. I'm doing it for the babies." I am unassailable. I have the unassailable high ground that I can do anything. I can rip up the Constitution. I can invalidate an election. I can encourage violence against uh, my fellow citizens and elected leaders because I'm doing it for the babies. Because if the bad guys get in again, there's going to be another Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And it it is, again, it's like it's, it's riding to power on the backs of people that you have literally made psychotic. And on that note, hey, have a happy, yeah, happy Fourth of July, by the way. Ha- have a happy holiday. Um, something, something to think about as we are watching the, the the fireworks. That you know, we have the republic if we can keep it. And uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I usually somewhat uh, darker than I am, but I'm I'm just feeling all of this is very ominous. Well, let me try and lighten the moment before Please, we think about everybody and say, you know, despite all of this, we have persevered and survived through revolution, a civil war, two world wars, a cold war, the nuclear age. I think that there are some pretty dark days ahead, but this one weekend, I think we should all go watch the fireworks and be both grateful because one of the things America has lost is a sense of gratitude about anything. Mm -hmm. We're we're a culture that is all about entitlement and resentment and never about gratitude. And to feel a sense of gratitude and maybe a little sense of optimism that this constitution has been through a lot of bad times, and yet it is still the oldest continuously functioning written constitution in the world. A little bit more gratitude. Tom Nichols, thank you so much. And by the way, thank you for uh, leaving on that note. <laughs> I think we all, we all really need it. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I hope you have a great July 4th weekend. We will be back next Tuesday, and we'll do this all over again.